This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, the federal government owes Canadian families in three provinces more than $200 million after underestimating how much it would raise from carbon tax during the first year of the program. Finance Canada thought the new price on pollution would bring in about $2.3 million in 2019. When the final tallies were counted, the program raised $2.4, uh, sorry, $2.42 billion. Uh, and to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Jasmine Moulton, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and is with us now. Jasmine, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. So the carbon tax on the best of days is hard enough for Canadians to understand and, and where the money goes and, and, and what happens and such. Uh, what has happened here with uh, these three provinces, uh, including Ontario? Well, essentially what happened is the federal government thought that the carbon tax would cost families less than it ended up costing us. Um, they, you know, had planned to give these rebates out in advance. And then when, you know, we realized how much it actually is costing families, they realized that they didn't, uh, you know, they charged families a lot more in the carbon tax and ended up being rebated. So we have hundreds of millions of dollars sitting in federal government coffers at a time when you'd think, wow, you know, going into 2020 is a time that families really could have used those hundreds of millions back in their pockets where they belonged. So why are we where we are with this? Well, I think this really shows a fundamental flaw that Justin Trudeau doesn't understand just how costly the carbon tax is to families. They've greatly underestimated how much it costs the average family. And uh, I think what was really alarming for us was his announcement back before Christmas when everyone was busy preparing for the holidays. He actually announced that the carbon tax is going to go up by 467% from from today's price mm-hmm. by 2030. He's raising it from $30 a ton currently to $170 per ton. Um, this is a 467% increase. So it's only going to get more and more expensive. Um, and I think what really is scary, too, is that in the la- before the last election, Justin Trudeau and then Environment Mr. Minister Catherine McKenna made a very clear promise to Canadians that they had no intention for the carbon tax to go up beyond $50 a ton. And now we see that it's uh, going up by 467% from its current price. So this is only going to get more expensive and it's already not revenue neutral, which was one of the biggest promises that this government made Canadians. What about reducing our carbon footprint? Well, I think that if the carbon tax did that, maybe it would have more supporters. But as we saw, actually, the province in Canada that has had the carbon tax for the longest time, British Columbia, they've had one since 2008. Justin Trudeau just imposed his on some provinces in 2019. British Columbia has seen their emissions go up substantially uh, since this carbon tax was introduced. And I think more telling and more worrying, because Justin Trudeau has based his federal carbon tax on the model first introduced in British Columbia, they completely abandoned their promise uh, for revenue neutrality at the time that it was introduced. 
Um, and today, all of that money just goes back into general revenue and goes toward other green initiatives, which should terrify everybody when we see, for example, you know, the federal government, part of their environmental initiative is planting trees. Well, they've already gone over budget by $3 billion. Yeah. The program is only supposed to cost $3 billion, and now it's at 6 So I think this is really worrying for everyone. And, you know, I think this is what obviously has Canadians and those around the world skeptical is, you know, is this actually uh, decreasing our carbon footprint? Is this actually saving the planet or is this just another way uh, to raise revenue? Um, Why has this not reduced emissions in British Columbia, if that was the intention? Well, a lot of it you have to realize is um, the government assuming that people can make these decisions uh, to change their behavior. And what I would point out for your listeners is that there's a big urban-rural divide here. This is very divisive policy, because if you live in the city, you can choose to take public transit to work. Um, but where I grew up in rural southwestern Ontario, my parents both had to drive, you know, 20, 30 minutes to work every single day. There, there aren't bike lanes that would take you, you know, the day just to get to work and back. Um, and, and there are actually a lot of people in Ontario already living in energy poverty. So we have to understand that in order for people to usually make these decisions that, you know, whether you want to drive a hybrid vehicle, well, they're not cheap. So if you want to help people make more environmentally conscious decisions, um, you have to leave more money in their pocket to be able to afford to do so. But the carbon tax takes uh, more money out of their pockets than it returns. And, and we should talk about this revenue neutrality issue because that's a farce. Um, so if you look, the government, this report that we're talking about today, they collected $2.42 billion in 2019 from the carbon tax. Well, the carbon tax can never be revenue neutral because the government charges H- uh, GST, the federal government's portion of the sales tax, on top of that. So if you just look at 5% hmm. of $2.42 billion, that means that they brought in $121 million in GST alone, and none of that will be rebated. So this is absolutely a moneymaker for governments. Um, they're pretending that it's lowering emissions. The data has shown it is not, and global emissions continue to rise anyway. So where does this go? How does the government correct this? Well, what they've said, um, at least in this report that came out, is that you know we can adjust the carbon tax rebate in future years um, you know, if we charged you too much last year, then we'll just increase the size of the rebate next year. Well, as I just mentioned, they're not rebating any of the GST that they charge yeah. on it. So they're already taking hundreds of millions out of our pockets that will never be rebated. Um, and frankly, I think that this, well, actually, the decision right now for the carbon tax in Ontario and other provinces is going before the Supreme Court. So we intervened in that case, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation did, and we're hoping that the Supreme Court will strike this down. But until then, we'll continue to fight this in the court of public opinion because we think it's fundamentally wrong for the government to be taking money out of taxpayers' pockets when it's not even uh, being proven to reduce emissions. Jasmine Moulton's been with us. Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Canada owes $200 million across three provinces after underestimating the carbon tax revenue. Jasmine, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We remember way back when, and my goodness, if you're as old as I am, this debate has been going on for centuries <laughs> and that is ontario liquor laws and being able to buy it uh, anywhere other than the monopolies that have controlled it for a bazillion years and uh we certainly saw movement when it went into meaning uh beer and and wine went into liquor store into grocery stores remember everybody thought the whole world was going to come to an end uh every day is going to be like new year's eve as soon as they start selling beer outside the lcbo in the beer store it's like are you kidding me and then the same thing with cannabis. Oh, my God, the world's going to fall apart. Uh, well, now I'm sure the same thing will happen. The world will uh, fall apart, certainly in Ontario. As 61 Ontario 7-Eleven stores have filed for a liquor license application. How will that change the landscape? Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail expert. He is with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today. Boy, it's funny, Bruce. It seemed it took forever for us to move at all, and then all of a sudden it started moving uh, with this government, and then COVID-19 has sort of sped all of this up. What are your thoughts on where we are with uh, corner stores and uh, liquor? Yeah, I definitely think, to your point, it's been quite a revolution in terms of distribution of alcohol in Ontario. And, um, you know, personally, I think it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, I hate to see sort of a monopoly, and I do think that the beer store had a bit of a monopoly on on that. You know, you can argue that the LCBO at one point had a monopoly as well, and still do. But I do think that choice is good for the consumer. And um, to your point, you know, I don't think um, all, all heck has broken loose since it's been done. So it seems to be uh, not a bad way to move forward. So will this come and go and nobody really noticing, or or will this start to raise flags, do you think? Well, I think it's always going to raise flags with certain groups, but I think uh, overall, because of COVID, people got used to ordering alcohol along with their food, um, you know, and that's something that we've kind of got used to. And, you know, the government probably saw it as an opportunity to allow business to thrive and said, hey, let's do it. And now you have, you know, 7-Eleven walking into this and they're a big player. So, you know, this should be an interesting dynamic. But, you know, I've noticed over the last little while that 7-Eleven has gotten a lot more aggressive with their advertising and really sort of proclaiming themselves as the neighborhood store. You know, and really that, with uh, and really with food and a restaurant feature. I mean, you know, pizza, that sort of thing. I mean, it's almost exactly. like it's a, become a takeout place. It is. Like, it's really changed, right? You know, it's not just gas and smokes anymore. You know, you can get a lot of different things. So I think this falls in line with that. And are we going to see, and again, I, I've noticed uh, there's a commercial on TV with a couple that are ordering a pizza, and then the surprise, because on the box it says 7-Eleven. Yeah. Uh, what what, what's your take on these types of stores moving in? And again, nothing new here. They've had the Slurpees and whatever forever, but they seems, there seems to be more of a movement towards this, more food in these stores. Yeah, I think it's all about, a, it's kind of uh, part and parcel to a macro trend that's all about convenience. So if you look at sort of the world in the last 10 years, the world has demanded more convenience. And uh, and whether that's, you know, Uber or, or home delivery of everything and, you know, skip the dishes and Foodora and all these apps, I think people are used to um, convenience. And um, I think that that's a big part of it now. And you're also seeing companies, you know, it's a tough marketplace out there and convenience market is tough. So they're looking for other revenue streams to help them improve profitability. But definitely I see this taking off just because just of the sheer convenience of it.
And lots of those laws that were changed for COVID, they may stay the same. They may not come back. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that are going to sort of be picked up during COVID and will probably remain, you know, speaking of the, you know, the growth of online sales, you know, the, the, the increase of homes, people working from home more, you know, that kind of thing, right? So there's a few of these trends we kind of picked up through necessity that I think people have gotten used to. And now they're going to be permanent trends, at least for the near future. Bruce Winder with us, retail expert, talking about 61 Ontario 7-Eleven stores filing for a liquor license uh, through application. Bruce, thanks for the time as always. Be well. Hey, you too. Thanks a lot. Glad to come back anytime. All right. It was glorious, actually, a couple of uh, weeks ago, I guess now, uh, that uh, all of a sudden COVID-19 was bumped off the head of the show. I think it's only happened twice. Uh, so far during the global pandemic, uh, once was for the tragic death of George Floyd, the other for LRT. What? What are you talking about? Well, yeah, it's uh, back on the table and it uh, sort of uh, started dinging its bell again uh, last week to talk more about all of this and where we are moving forward. Former mayor, former mayor of Hamilton, Larry Deany, and he is with us now. Larry, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. You sound to be in fine form as well. Well, you know, I mean, a year stuck in your house, what can you do, right? Uh, you get used to it after a while. Exactly. So are you surprised to hear this, uh, those three letters coming back up again? Well, I, I likened, uh, when, I, when I read that, I, I thought this is like uh, one of those uh, soap opera serials, you know, like All My Children, yeah. where it's always uh, intriguing to watch, and if you miss a half a dozen or 50 episodes, you go back. It's yeah. intriguing, but the plot hasn't moved forward at yeah. all. And so we're we're stuck in, in that loop, I'm afraid. Uh, but it seems as if uh, the provincial government, at least nominally, has put it back on the rails. Uh, pardon the pun. Uh, yeah, our long-lost Uncle LRT is now back in uh, back at the dinner table. Uh, so uh, do you see this moving forward now? It seems like the time is right, although we have said that before. We have said that many, many times before. Uh, so he, here are several issues that, that need to be dealt with, uh, more than several, but the, the principal ones, in my estimation, um, the, uh, the government of Ontario has said yes, uh, we're going to give you the billion dollars that you were promised uh, so many years ago. Uh, we know it's not enough, and therefore we want the feds to pony up one and a half billion dollars. And to help you secure those funds, we have put LRT um, on a list of priorities uh, for infrastructure dollars with the federal government. And it's the fifth priority, it's not the first or the second or the third or the fourth is the fifth priority. And uh, so the, if, the, if the feds pony up a billion dollars and a half, uh, and plus our billion, then you can build your LRT. The problem with that, I mean, and that sounds good and it may happen, but the problem with that, of course, is that the federal government said that they're going to spend $15 billion uh, on infrastructure programs across the country. And Toronto's other asks are for subways in Toronto and other projects. And so how much is the feds, uh, federal government going to fund? Uh, will we get that money? Is it a nice gesture 
uh, on the part of the provincial government, or is it an empty gesture? That remains to be seen. We do have a few aces in the hole, however. One is that Philomena Tassi, who's a minister in the Trudeau government and a Hamiltonian and supportive of the LRT, maybe she can get in behind the scenes and prompt the government to give us the, uh, the shortfall. Uh, that would be great. The other ace in the hole is the fact that we do have this third-party independent source, Liuna, whom we know very well in Hamilton, um, that has po- promised to pony up up mm-hmm. to 200 or $250 million, which also is not chum change. So all of those plates are in the air, um, uh, Scott. Whether they, whether they stay in the air in equilibrium or crash and, uh, and shatter remains to be seen. Isn't this a no-brainer for the feds, though, considering the project is where it is, and if you're looking to stimulate infrastructure, this one's ready to go? Absolutely. And there would probably be other communities that would make the similar case yeah. for those $15 billion across the country as well. But Hamilton's got to get something. We are a large municipality. Uh, our economy has been hit. Um, all you have to do is walk downtown uh, to see some of the local businesses that have been that have been um, harmed by uh, by this pandemic uh, recession. Uh, so we need to get something, and uh, we have a shovel ready program. In fact, a couple of hundred million dollars have already been spent towards it. Uh, it's shovel ready. Uh, the route has been spelled out. That's another story because they intend on cutting the roof the route in half. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it's a project that's set to go. Uh, all it takes is the political will and that golden check. So what about council on this? You know, are they well, now that the, the feds in the province have kind of moved in, that pushes them to the back burner or uh, are they going to stick a, a put a stick in the spokes here? Well, and that's the other issue. I said there are several large issues. That certainly is one of them, because. If you read the local paper, when the announcement was made that uh, the, the province is going to uh, stick with its commitment of a billion dollars, uh, but the route had to be half of what it was intended to be, uh, going from McMaster to Gage Park, um, you know, one of the councillors said, wait a minute, um, you know, double the cost for, for half the ride. Uh, and another councillor said, wait, we didn't sign up for this. We agreed to the route as it was. We need to look at this again to see if it makes any sense or should we have a plan B. So, um, you know, there's lots of, there's probably lots of um, um, uh, work being done right now behind the scenes uh, in terms of trying to align all of these disparate dots uh, to see if it's a workable plan. I remember talking to former Premier Kathleen Wynne on the air, and she was giggling that we were still d- debating all of this. She had already come and promised the money, and, and and council was still debating. And I remember her laughing about that. So, you know, here we think, ha, 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 it won't happen again. But it very well could be derailed at the municipal level, could it not? It could, um, because as well as... Um as, of course, the hard dollars for the infrastructure, uh, you have to talk about the operating costs as well and who uh, is in control of those, picks up any shortfalls. Um, and so, yes, the premier, I mean, 
Scott, uh, I was um, at uh, McMaster University when the Premier made the announcement mm -hmm. uh, to give us $1.3 billion uh, way back then. Uh, and, and part of that money um, was going to also cover the, uh, the gold train uh, on, uh, on uh, Highway 20 uh, that is still under construction and hopefully will go through. Uh, but people were absolutely giddy. Uh, receiving that largesse because we didn't know whether we'd get 50%, 75%. We got 100%, which was what the provincial government told us would be the cost for hard, uh, the hard cost for the infrastructure back then. And of course, costs have risen now. And so they've, they've doubled and, you know, even more than that. And, and that's why the shortfall is there. And so the provincial government, um, that caused it because I was also at that meeting. I was on the air with you, in fact. Yes, when it was canceled. Uh, when it was canceled. You know, when uh, Minister Mulroney came to town and said, uh, we're pulling the plug. Um, and, and so that um, time has gone by. Uh, money has been spent. And the provincial government has cost, uh, or caused at least, this cost overrun that now they're not honoring at all. They're looking for the feds to, to make up the shortfall. So, you know, there's all kinds of unanswered questions still. However, the good news is for those who want to see this project uh, happen, and, and I was certainly a supporter of it, um, it's at least back on the agenda. And hopefully people, smart people, well-intentioned people, are talking to each other to see how, in fact, this can be more than a headline, but a project that goes ahead. So what's the next step here, Larry? What has to happen next? Well, I think the clearly the federal government has to give a signal as to whether they're uh, on board or not. Uh, so that's crucial because those dollars would be required. And then council needs to be of one mind in terms of how it's going to react uh, to this. Say the federal government said, yes, we'll give you the money tomorrow. Do we want a council to start, you know, uh, navel gazing again and, and cause it? to maybe uh, be rethought one more time. Uh, and what about uh, extending it? What would it cost to extend it uh, to Eastgate as was originally planned? And who might pick that up? Uh, and also, I think council has to disabuse itself of the notion that this project is going to cost not one red cent uh, to the community, as some of the councillors have signed on to this project on that condition. I think that's, you know, and these are all friends of mine and I love them all, but that's living in, in a fairy tale land. It's not realistic to assume that you're going to have a project of this magnitude, this expenditure, and at the end of the day, it's going to cost the municipality nothing. Um, you know, you know you're a bit there. more generous. You're a bit more generous to council than I am, Larry, because, again, you're saying, you know, the provincial government pulled the plug on it. Well, it was city council that created the absolute perfect storm that allowed that to happen and creating this sort of divisiveness within the city that it still wasn't going to go even after the, the, the premier of the day is handing out a check that council keeps tripping over. And, you know, they thought that I think the conservatives thought they were going to roll into town 
down and no one was going to give a rat's rear end that this thing was canceled because we couldn't we, we couldn't get council to take the damn money. I mean, they kept no matter how many times this was approved, they kept finding a way to reject it, which, you know, I mean, if your council's fighting, there's no way you're going to get support from the from the, the uh, province or the feds for that matter. You got to be rowing in the same direction. So, so you know, I, I don't disagree with, with the large portion of what you're saying, Scott, but here's the distinction that I would draw. Um, in terms of actual motions, in terms of council direction, these are votes at council, it was full steam ahead. But the side discussions and the distractions uh, made it seem as if, as if, in fact, not everybody was on board or they were looking for an exit ramp down the road. And so it seemed tentative. But in terms of direction, remember, council agreed. Money was being spent. Properties were being purchased. So don't let's not confuse, you know, the, the cacophony of, of a democratic debate with council direction. There is a difference. And I know to the public it, it, it looks messy, and democracy sometimes is. But in terms of what council told staff to do, they were moving forward. Well, again, when I got the premier on the show giggling because they're still in decision, I don't know. I think that speaks volumes. But I hear what you're saying, Larry. Uh, Larry Deany with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, talking about LRT being back on the table. Larry, as always, thank you so much for your time. Be well. Stay well. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.